I was told by my first boss in the first station I ever worked, and I was the first woman to be offered a job as reporter. He said to me, Anne, women have no news judgment. Besides, you can't carry the camera, so you should not be a reporter. You should turn down this job if you know what's good for you. And my mouth said, um, can you just give me a chance? I'll, I'll, I really will make you proud. I'll do a good job. And my brain said, oh, yeah, watch me. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a regular here, welcome back. If you're new, well, welcome to you as well. Every week, I sit across from one of the most influential women from all different industries and talk to her about her life, her career, the tough choices that she's had to make along the way, the trade-offs. These are the questions that I know we're all asking ourselves every single day on our journeys. And I'm talking to her beyond the resume, from decision-making to the trade-offs, the most pivotal moments, the worst advice that she's received along the way. I want all of you to be a fly on the wall in the lives of these incredibly successful women and to be able to absorb some of that knowledge and wisdom that they've had to gain, frankly, through hardship and struggle. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, everyone, we have an incredible guest here with us today. She has been a reporter for over 30 years, spent 15 years at the Today Show. She's been all over the world covering international conflicts, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Darfur, the Congo, Serbia, Lebanon, Israel. There are so many locations. We could spend the entire podcast talking about all the places she's been. She has countless awards, including seven Emmys, and she started her career as an intern at the NBC affiliate in Medford, Oregon. (laughs) Now her new show is called Chasing the Cure. Anne Curry, welcome to No Limits. <laughs> oh, thank you, Rebecca. What a nice introduction. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It's pretty cool to be sitting across from you. You have always gone after the big stories, the hard stories. Um, but I want to go back to the beginning for you. Medford, Oregon. Oh, my gosh. You're an intern. Mm-hmm. How did you come by this internship in the early years? Well, by hook and by crook. I mean, I had put myself through college. And when I got out of college, I was broke. So the first job I got was as a cocktail waitress, and it was a really tough job. Although my boss was pretty cool and and all of that, um, I I still didn't love the job. And I was talking to (laughs) someone. What was your least favorite part of the job? Wearing the outfits, frankly. They were very tight, number one. And and also, um, to be honest with you, probably the worst part was that sometimes – People would say things that were not appropriate, right? Not great. I mean, I I, I heard a racial slur at one point uh, uh, directed at me, which was not cool, right? So, but the good news is that the um, that the owner threw the guy out. So I so oh. I'm so so it worked out. But at one point when I was a cocktail waitress, um, I was serving drinks to somebody who had come in from the local TV station, and my professor, one of my professors in college had encouraged me to go into television. And I and I my aim was newspapers. And I thought I'm going to go uh, work at the New York Times someday. Um, but I had to basically pay off my school loans. So I decided to get a job first. Well, this person kept saying, well, you know, even though you're going to go work at the New York Times someday, you know, she's probably winking to herself. She said, you know, there is an internship at the local TV station. And you might as well be doing that because you probably work about, uh, you know, earn as much money or about as much money. So I went down to the local TV station because, on her advice, 
and I applied for a job that basically had me doing everything but pick up the mail. I ran the studio cameras. I mean, I was just basically the flunky running around doing all kinds of things. And it caused me to learn uh, and see and observe um, a great deal. Mm. And I had learned in journalism school and, and was worried about being worthy enough to be a journalist, right? I always thought of it not as being something I deserved, but rather when you're talking about people's stories, you're interviewing people sometimes at the worst moments in their lives. How do you deserve Mm-hmm. How do you, how are you worthy to do that job? So I thought a lot about that and I wanted to be worthy of it. And that's how I approached it. And, um, you know, I had gotten a journalism degree and um, when one thing led to another, um, a position opened up. Um, I was offered a job in reporting. And from there, what did you do next? From there, I, I focused. I mean, the truth is my goal was to be a good reporter. It wasn't to go somewhere, be somewhere. I was really just focused on being a really good reporter. And I thought about what is it that this community needs? And if they're going to have to watch me be on television and make all, you know, be, look stupid on TV and, and try to figure out how to, to overcome the natural awkwardness that any normal human being would feel if you're in front of a camera, uh, a live camera, for potentially hours at a time, if they're going to have to watch me go through that process, let me leave them something. So I started looking around at what does this community need? And and one of the things I'm proudest of in that small town was was that they had a really poor response time for uh, their EMTs, their ambulances. And I did an investigation that, that highlighted the times and what areas um, were most um, problematic for, uh, for, for patients. And how some people died because because the EMTs arrived too late and and there were ch- was change as a result in that community. So I was felt really proud of that. And and then, you know, I, I got a call, essentially. Um, somebody said, you know, you ought to go where I own the station up in Portland, Oregon, and maybe from where I was in Medford, Oregon, you know, maybe you should go work there. And And I said, no, I've got to commit to my community. And no, I'm not going to leave. And one of my best friends after six months said, what are you doing? You should call them up and go and work in Portland because it's a bigger station. And you're going to help more people. You're going to be able to do better journalism. So that's what happened. Then I moved to Portland. Then somebody saw me uh, and suggested that I work at CBS. So I worked at uh, KCBS in Los Angeles. And then um, that person called me up at one point and I went to go work at NBC. So it was really a journey of just trying to leave good work wherever I went and and trying to reach the most people with that work. Mm-hmm. That that really seems like something that this idea of a responsibility you put it on yourself from a very early stage. I think all journalists should put that responsibility should. on themselves. I do. Do you feel like they do? No, I think journalism has gone through all kinds of changes. I think one of the struggles has been that um, after the fairness doctrine was dismissed and there was a lack of – there wasn't – there was once a law that said that everything in broadcasting had to be balanced, that you had to be fair, especially when it comes to politics – that if you talk to one side, you had to talk to another. Well, that is was gotten rid of. And as a result, there is a little bit more of a free-for-all. And the other part that really changed broadcast journalism was that people who produced it realized that if you did it a certain way, if you produced it a certain way, you could make a lot of money at it. So when I came into journalism, you couldn't make a lot of money at it. 
And during my time, I saw that change. Do you mean the sensationalism? When you lose the motivation, when you when your motivation is to make money, you are going to make decisions that are not good for journalism. That is why there is a church and state or has been a church and state division between the people who figure out how to make it work financially and the people who figure out how to make it work editorially. When that wall does not exist or is crumbling, as it is in some places uh, in America, or is um, completely destroyed because newspapers are dying, especially across certain swaths of America, you, you know, you have a problem because you have a bad motivation, a motivation that is impure, that affects um, what stories you do, what questions you ask, how it's edited together, potentially how it's written, how it's broadcast, who you choose to anchor it. All those, all those motivations are um, not great motivations for journalism. The motivation for any journalist should be to find the truth, period. And that means that you need to think about all the things you need to do to get at the truth. That takes time. That costs money. It takes more time and more money than, than people who want to make money want to spend. So there are all kinds of issues. I think the advent of broadcasting and then the softening of standards because of these financial concerns in broadcasting has really hurt journalism as a whole. And um, uh, there are a lot of factors involved. Um, um, but I will say at the same time that um, I have uh, not met more some of the most dedicated, the most willing to work, uh, the most insane hours as in days without end with two hours sleep, the most dedicated to finding the truth, the most idealistic people have been in journalism, in broadcasting as well as in print. And so you have this sort of interesting mix. You've got a lot of people in it who are fighting to do the do it correctly. Mm. And you it's almost like it's there is a system that has arisen that has affected their ability to do it correctly. So it's really it's really a struggle. But in the end, if you study journalism as I did, you'll also know and anyone who doesn't know, I'm saying this to you now, that hi- the history of journalism has always been fraught. It is done made it's it's a you know it's the first we're the first scribes of history and we are human beings telling stories about human beings um for human beings and there are as a result uh, going to be um the fundamental flaw that human beings are flawed and human beings will make mistakes and hear it incorrectly tell it incorrectly mm-hmm. and sources will lie to you even maybe just bend the truth a little bit to you so the struggle for the truth is a it really is a is a fight, and it is best won if you're motivated only to find the truth. What do you say to the people fighting out there right now who are coming up against that wall? I I I I would say that uh, the fight is not about you, or even about the the profession, or about where you work. It's for the people. So, given that we are a democracy that depends on a well informed populace, I would say work for them. Ask the questions they need to have answered. What if your boss is telling you not to? I have always put the public first. 
And I've fought with my bosses to make sure that I could. Mm. And I think that's the job of journalists. It's to fight for the public. And, 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 and why else would um, I convince um, my bosses to, to let it, me cover stories that I was told that nobody cares about? You know, Take us inside one of those conversations. How did you convince them? Because part of it is about money. So when the bosses say no and you can't travel to XYZ place because that's potentially tens of thousands of dollars. It is tens of thousands of dollars. And, the, and there is a fear that there isn't going to be a great return. How did you convince them? I said, this is the right thing to do. Uh, I, I did this. Did you just go and, and do it? Did you just over. get on the airplane? No, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. I mean, I obviously work for somebody. And I don't want to spend their money. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I have to be ethical about it. But but I did. I did. I was just the squeaky wheel. You know, I would say um, I remember in the war in Kosovo, I felt that that overall broadcasting did not do a fantastic job covering the war in Bosnia, which we know was a genocidal uh, war. And it was really an awful, awful crime. Crimes against humanity were committed, and we, we sort of covered it, but we didn't really, really cover it. And I remember when the war moved into Bosnia, uh, into Kosovo, rather, I went to my boss and said, you know, we need to do a better job. We need to go in with feet on the ground. We need to do more. And he wasn't listening. And then I said something that people might take offense to. I said, sir, you're Jewish. This is genocide. You know, and I know this is wrong and that this must be covered. And I, he got really angry with me. And he threw me out of his office. Didn't really throw me, but he said, thank you very curtly. And I left. Then I went to go pick up um, my daughter's Easter uh, dress because I she needed, she outgrew her last one and it was time for Easter and I got a call from my boss and the boss said okay you're right you're going I said I'm going I'm saying we should cover this he goes nope you're going and you're going tonight so I told my kids I wasn't going to be there to hide the eggs that that, I, that the Easter bunny was going to come without me and my daughter st- started sobbing and then I ran down to the local sporting goods store and picked up all the stuff I needed and got on the plane. And I remember my kids after about a week there, and we did a lot of live reporting every morning. And we were the first to do that in a bit, the big way that we were doing it. And after that, all the networks came one after another, and they started going live early in the morning as well. And I remember, you know, soon after, you know, there was a coalition formed to push back against this kind of uh, cruelty. And basically they threatened Milosevic um, that they would bomb every bridge to Belgrade and they started to make good on that promise and he stopped the violence. And I remember my son and my daughter on the phone as I was on a sat phone. It was, we, those days we were using sat phones um, on the way out. I said, Mom, we saw on TV what they were doing to those poor people. It's not right, is it? And I said, no, it, it's not right, Walker. Mac and Walker said, well, did you get them their homes back? I said, Mm. no, honey, I didn't get them their homes back. But, you know, what we did show them is that the world does care. And they said, well, that's good, mom. That's good. And, you know, I try to do that with everyone. I've I've tried to go. I haven't. That was the, the strongest language I ever used to a boss was to 
um, call him out in the way that I did with the person in this particular case. But in every case, I've just been the squeaky wheel. This is the right story to do. This is why we have to go to Darfur. This is the right story to do. This is why we have to go in the early period of, of, of Syria when the war was just beginning. This is the right story to do. We have to go to Southeast Asia because this is a major deal. A lot of people are suffering. And if people don't know about it, how do we connect them to what's happening? How do we even move forward knowing that hundreds of thousands of people have been have their lives destroyed? Why are we not connecting them with us? And I have learned over and over again, when you connect people, they care and they're grateful. Bosses have said to me, and I don't know what you're doing. I remember coming back, I think it was from Congo, and a boss got me on the phone and said, look, Anne, I'm in the car on the way home. I'm, I'm exhausted. I haven't slept in days. He goes, Anne, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it, but I don't want you to stop. So in the end, you know, if you do it well, they get it. It's hard. It is hard. And there have been many stories I've been not able to do. And it's heartbreaking, you know, because I want, I, I want to give voice to the voiceless. I want people to not suffer in silence. I learned the lesson of the Holocaust, which was that America's journalism organizations, major newspapers, we looked the did, other not, way. did not cover that story as it deserved to be covered. And I learned that lesson. And as a journalist, it was not going to happen on my watch. Yeah, you know, I mean, you don't always win, but you've got to argue for them. You've got to argue for these stories, especially if it smells of genocide, especially if it smells of crimes against humanity or just deep poverty. And I've talked about, done stories, you know, about some of the poorest places in America. Put them on prime time and people cared and donations came in and, you know, people were woke before we even understood what that word meant or invented that word. They were people, you wake people up. That's the job of a journalist. There are so many areas I want to dig into with you here that, that come off of things you just said. One thing, and, and I don't mean to diminish in any way the work that you did, but you mentioned your children and racing off across the globe to cover these stories. I just had a baby and, and I am now for the first time in my life, a working mom what kind of conversations were you having with your children back then about the work and the importance of the work to you and their importance to you as well? Oh, sure. Rebecca, first of all, congratulations. I Thank mean, the you. early years are sort of the hardest time. You can't have a conversation, obviously, because they need you all the time, uh, more than you can imagine. My best advice to you on that is uh, when you're at work, be 100 percent at work. But when you're home, be 100 percent at home. You know, do not if you've Cell phone rings, you know, do it, you know, go outside the house or, or go in the bathroom. Don't, don't make your kids feel they're competing with your, with your device for attention as much as possible. But, but you know, I didn't really um, begin a lot of the traveling until they were old enough to understand, at least um, were able to talk about what was happening. There is no, it's okay if, if you don't come back. Nothing you can say can make that right. And I, I, my hotel was just nearby when the Marriott blew up in in uh, Pakistan, and I did you ever seeing, talk along yeah, those lines with your yeah. kids before you left? Before I left, no. But I remember seeing my kids. I was skyping with my kids after that explosion, and to see the strain on their face. And there's no, no, no way is that right to put your kids through that fear. No way is that right. And they 
and I've had to apologize to them for it, although they refuse to accept my apology because they say I have nothing to apologize for. So I got really lucky with my kids. kids. Well, they, you know, I think it's really them. I mean, you know, I'm from a military family and I know that anyone who is from a military family will understand that you serve along with the person in your military family. I served not in the same way as my father and we were a career military, but every time we moved, every new group of friends you had to make, every time you were scared, every time you were missing your your father or your mother uh, because they were in the service, you're serving. And so what I said was, you're the most important person in my life, and you're the most important person. You together, you are the most important to my life. I would, I, And they knew from the way I mothered them that that was true. And I prove that all the time in how I behave with them. But there are other people who are also hurting. And if you can share me a little bit, I can help them too. And I don't know how much I can help them, but I want to try by by letting them be seen by everybody else. And, you know, sometimes it was harder. Uh, I will say that my husband really helped because he would say stuff like this. Hey, kids, mom has, you know, has a purpose in life. And... Yeah, she's, you know, your mom, and that's part of her purpose, and it's the biggest part of her purpose. But there's something else that she's supposed to do. Can we support her doing that? And he would say this to them. And and also he stepped up and was there. Yeah. And I think it was hard on sometimes and not hard on other times. But, you know, when I came back, they were so proud. I mean, they would put signs on my front door, our front door, you know, pictures of me. Here's mom saving the world, which of course I wasn't doing, but that's how they perceived it. <laughs> that had to feel it. great to come home to, though. It was always great to come home to them and to, to have children safe, you know, when you had come from places where, where children were not. And, and I felt really lucky to yeah. have that. And to this day, I can say they're now millennials and, um, you know, they, and when I've, I've said, I've brought it up several times. I'm so sorry. I go, no, mom. We're really proud of what you've done, and don't take that away from us. So I don't know. You know, I, I still wrestle with it because, you know, I'm still a mom who hopes that I've done right by them and am still doing right by them. But I'm also very proud of the work I've been able to do and the faces that have been able to be seen. You know, one time I was in a refugee camp in Darfur, and I turned around, and the sun was right behind me, and I was, you know, I was taking pictures, and I picked up my camera and I took a picture of a boy who'd fallen to his knees in front of me in rags. And he looked up at me, and I could see immediately from his face that he was highly traumatized. And on the edge of Darfur or so, these people had been burned out of their homes and been chased and, and shot at by the Janjaweed. And I remember taking his picture then, immediately feeling bad about it, and like, you know, because I couldn't speak to them. I showed them the pictures because they liked seeing the pictures of themselves. And when the kids ran off, a man came up to me. I don't know who he was, but he said, thank you for taking our picture. Because now it cannot be said that people did not know we didn't exist. They know we're here. That was such a moment for me. You know, even if they have to suffer, to not suffer in silence, not to be unknown, that has got to be the worst thing. And so that's the mission. That should be the mission of all of us. Anywhere on the world, if people are, uh, if, if, People are voiceless and there is something unjust that is occurring or something that can be changed, suffering that can be changed because we connect them to the wider world. We should do it. 
That is our job. We're supposed to shine light in places of darkness. That's our job. You mentioned earlier when you were going to Bosnia, when you were making this pitch, that you recognized that the press wasn't necessarily covering the story Mm. to the fullest. Mm -hmm. When you look now today at coverage, all different areas, are you skeptical that you're not getting the full picture, given what you learned and experienced back then in your career? Well, not given what I've learned and experienced back in my career, just basically because because of much of reporting today has really been about one story. And it's um, politics, a, politics, the president over and over and over again. And so a lot of the air has been sucked out of the room. A lot of um, um, space in newspapers, in magazines, a lot of airtime. Uh, in broadcast and radio and podcasts and on television has been sucked out of the coverage of the world and and all the issues all over the world all over this country that should be covered so i don't i don't have to be skeptical i know we're not hearing all the stories we should be hearing Do you i watch know the news hear more from ann curry after a quick word from our sponsor We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you watch know. the news? I actually don't. I, I sometimes dip into it. There's some really good journalists on television uh, I, I like watching um, who I trust and do a really good job. And sometimes I listen to radio. But to be honestly honest with you, because I'm interested in not just the who, what, where, when, I'm interested in the why and the how, a lot of times I go to newspapers which are still carrying that ball. For depth. For depth. Because it's the why and the how that can often be the most important part of the story. You know, the perspective of understanding why something happened, how it's connected to history, how things are connected in a manner that lets you understand why this is happening and why it could happen again. Not just the the boom and the flash and the, oh my gosh, look at that. It's not the, you know, I, I need, I, I'm a student of history and I care a lot about humanity. So for me, how and why. So I read several newspapers. I try to glance at even foreign newspapers. And um, and so I dabble. But my the majority of my news comes from print. But I do watch a little and I lo- listen to a little to augment, augment it. Yes. The coverage around your departure from the Today Show has done its job, in my opinion. But as somebody who watched that now seven years ago, Seven years um, seven, ago. Can you That's believe it? It's been seven years. It's so there's a lot to discuss about your life now, and we're mm. going to do that in just a minute. But I wanted to just briefly touch on the idea that as somebody watching that 
and watching you, and I didn't know you at the time, mm. but watching you go through that as a journalist myself, um, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me was that this is an ugly business or it can be mm. an ugly, ugly business. And I remember I was working for CBS News at the time and I remember standing in the hallway and there were people chattering about it as there were in hallways in this business and all different types of businesses because mm. it was such a pivotal moment. If you were to go back in time and say one thing to that Anne, what would you tell her? I would say, um, I guess I would probably say uh, it's going to be all right. Um, you really, to be honest with you, the thing that was causing me so much pain was um, that I had established such a close relationship in my own mind uh, with the people who watched the program. And I was hurting because I couldn't leave them. It was like leaving a love affair, leaving people I loved, loved with the capital L, loved. I'd seen and heard their reactions to the kinds of stories I did. I noticed because my bosses would tell me, you know, Anne, when you did the story about Syria or you did the story about Darfur, actually, was it, it actually happened with Darfur, that when you did this reporting about these women in Darfur at this refugee camp, the minute by minute, which I had no idea until then, there was a minute by minute ratings count, the minute by minute went up. I said, you're kidding. People responded. They cared about that. She goes, they, they, yes, they're watching that. And I thought, wow, I love these people. Hmm. They have big hearts. They'll come with me. They'll come with me and they'll take, they'll let me take them to places that are hard to go to and see because they want to know the truth. When I, you know, I've done stories, I did a story about a man who was, who created a charity and, and, and within 48 hours, I don't know where this money came from. Uh, more than a million dollars was donated. And I didn't, wasn't, I didn't do the story for a donate. I just did the story because he was a remarkable person. You know, I'm sure that there was probably one major donor, but people called when I did a story about a girl, a young girl who was victimized um, by war and violence in Congo and yet showed great resilience and grace. The phone lines lit up. You know, Nightly News was just struggling to handle all the phone calls. And I thought, I love these people. I love that they have the capacity in them to care about people they have never met who may speak a language they don't understand, who may live in a country that maybe even just you have to take a minute to figure out where it is on a map. I love these people. And so to suddenly have to leave them was hard. And so I would say to myself, it's going to be okay. Um, they're going to still be there. They'll still be there. And you can find new ways of caring for them. And even when you, when you leave a relationship that is that important, for me, it was very – I didn't, didn't even realize, I think, fully until then, that moment, how much I loved them. Mm. And that was when I – that was really what hurt the most, that I couldn't keep working for them. I couldn't keep fighting for the stories that, quote, unquote, nobody cared about for them. And it was so much of your identity. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I my identity was as a wife and as a mother, um, but I had spent, um, you know – as you say, more than 30 years and spent so much of that time at, in network news. So it was a big connection to my identity. But, you know, obviously I was still all those other things. I was my father's daughter. I was mm-hmm. my mother's daughter. So 
so I had that. But I think that what really helps you in those kinds of moments is um, to be rooted in the right and wrong of knowing I've never given up my idealism. I've never given up my sense of what is right and what is wrong. And so I may change my hairstyle. I may change my the way I do my makeup. I may change my clothes. But who I am deep down is exactly the same. And so in those terrible moments, you know, staying – and I think that if I were to ever say anything to anyone, because I think it's not just this profession. I think it's all professions. I think, you know, there's a reason why uh, David Brooks wrote a book called The Second Mountain. There's a reason why – we hear and we're so connected to the hero's journey. Uh, you know, you can read about um, or you can – in any movie, her- heroic movie you'll watch, it's the same story. It's about – if you watch Star Wars, it's the same story. It's about someone who has something to offer, who ascends, and then something terrible happens that guts them, that makes them fall to their knees, and then they stand back up again. That's the hero's journey. And when I think about that, that idea of the second mountain – and the idea that this is actually something that all of us really probably will face, whether it's loss of a loved one or being fired at work or being challenged or we're being outsourced or found that technology is taking over our jobs. We're all facing that kind of struggle. And I guess what I've learned is that the things that you can best forgive, you can forgive virtually anyone and anything, but the person that's hardest to forgive is yourself. And the person that's hardest to have compassion for is yourself. My thoughts about that are to to never do anything that you would not forgive in yourself. And I've and the good news for me is that I haven't. I can stand up and brush myself off and say I've always stayed true to. I can look at myself in the mirror. So to to do that is important. And then the other thought I would have is is do try to have compassion for yourself. Do try to be kind yourself and understand that you're a human being who deserves that kindness. And if you don't get it from others, give it to yourself because you deserve it. And so those are would be my takeaway bits of advice to anyone listening today who has faced or may someday face that second mountain. And what was the turning point to climb the next mountain for you? Oh, I'm from a very resilient background. I, I come from a mother who's taught me that. And the turning point was really that I wanted to continue giving. Were you immediately looking for the next project? Um, It wasn't so much that I needed to, it wasn't about me looking for the next project. It was for me looking for the next thing that would be useful, right? So think about it. All these stories that I've done, all my, my thinking in terms of how I move from one job to the other, this is the same thinking. What would actually be impactful? What would actually mean something to people? What actually would be... I mean, I was offered things, but I, they weren't the thing that would, that would let me do that thing that I could come away with and say that was something that was a gift for this audience. That was something that I could be generous with. So I did a 12-hour docuseries for PBS that worked out as an impactful series, um, and I write articles for National Geographic magazine. I have one actually in the August issue on the Dalai Lama, I've traveled to India and interviewed him and did a big profile on him. And now I'm working on Chasing the Cure, which is an effort to connect people who are underserved, undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, and connect them uh, directly with doctors who, are, who can help. We're talking about highly qualified doctors. And actually also connect them to anyone out there 
in the country and eventually even in the world who may know something about these symptoms or Mm -hmm. maybe a medical professional and who could step up and help. And so this is, again, giving voice to the voiceless. It's about finding – it's about breaking, punching through the silos that actually isolate all of us from the specialists we need, all of us from the doctors getting enough time with our doctors, the problems with our medical um, insurance, where we live, our access to, to the right people. And it's basically taking a, trying to punch into that silo, into the side of it, and saying, what if we just connect people directly? What would happen? What would happen? And, and to sort of find a way that might help people. That's what we're trying to do. It's a massive undertaking. It is. Oh, my goodness. Tell me about it. You're anchoring and executive producing Chasing the Cure. Oh, my goodness. I even helped design the couch. I mean, I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've your, been every wait, other, everything. On the couch, which I, I would love a picture of this couch to post <laughs> on Instagram. What specifically did you say needed to change on the couch? I wanted an embrace. I wanted anyone who's coming on to our live broadcast, walking onto that into that studio, who's already desperate mm. to feel embraced. So what I said was, I want a couch that is a circle. I want them to come into a, uh, a situation where they're in a circle. I don't want doctors to be set up in this kind of way that even adds to the intimidation of being sitting in front of a panel of highly qualified doctors, some of the best minds in medicine in this country. I didn't want a situation that said, oh, I'm standing in front of you, or I wanted a curved, warm, welcoming, we're all in this together feeling. And so I chose the fabric. I chose the design of it. <laughs> what I, color I, is it? It's actually, well, it's kind of a pale, almost a slightly charcoal gray. So it's sort of not, <laughs> no color, but it's, but it's, but it's the way it's, it's like two sort of C's, right? They're, they're, they, uh-huh. they face each other. It's a facing, so it's a circle. It's basically a circle. Forgive my curiosity around the couch. I just, no, I, I appreciate you your attention to I detail. I didn't want it to be, I want it to be as Nancy Meyer living room as possible. <laughs> I think she, and, 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 but also as warm, you know, mm-hmm. as that might be. Because I wanted people, and I wanted people to come in to feel embraced. Yes. So, so down to that level and including in being involved in finding the doctors. I mean, we were we were looking for doctors, and we found doctors who are full time doctors, and we had to convince them to come and help and to be on this project with us. And they had to figure it out how to figure out how they could find the time. We're talking about people who are very good at diagnosing illnesses, very smart minds, and we were connected not only to these doctors in front of the camera and doctors behind the camera. But also, because we're connected to major medical centers, to uh, 52,000 physicians across the country who we can call on and say, we need an expert for X. And there'll be lots of patients we won't be able to find a cure for, but maybe we can find them a rule out. or Maybe we can find them a treatment. And at the very least, I hope we can find that they are cared for and that they are seen, that they're not invisible. So that's really what it is. It's really about, it's a mitzvah. That's what it is. It's a massive mitzvah. Uh, and also think about it. It's happening at a time when everyone I know, and I think everyone out there really would like to see us be reminded of what already exists inside of us, which is that our, our ability to be compassionate with each other. In the bigger picture, mm. not just purely on this project, but in life, what does success look like to you? 
How do you define it? Very simply, I go back to what my father said to me when I was 12, when I said, Dad, what should I do when I grow up? And he said, Anne, and this is heavy for a 12-year-old, he said, Anne, whatever you do, do something that is of some service in your job or in your life, some service to someone else. Because then and only then, when you're breathing your last breath on your last day, only then will you know that it mattered that you were born. Now, he would say okay, this to Dad. me. Okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. That was intense. And he would say this to me over, you know, I Can we go get him, a milkshake Exactly. Now? <laughs> More than that, I need a massage. I'm 12, I need a massage. But, I mean, he would say that when I was, you know, 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. And he would say, you know, just do something. You Did know? that feel like pressure to you in yeah, any way? What, what it was was not pressure as much because he didn't say it like, do this. He said it like, you know, this is the truth. And so it was like the high bar. And and he was talking about walking the old lady across the street. He was talking about helping somebody with their carry their groceries. Be he was good talking at the about core. be be someone who does something of service, being good to your neighbor. Just be that person. And maybe you don't forget that in your job. But maybe you get but you all everyone gets that opportunity in life. We get that opportunity pretty much on a daily basis in life. We don't always seize it. You know, we don't always say hello to the che- girl at the checkout stand or we don't always, you know, we're not always nice to mom on the phone or whatever, but we, we have an opportunity every day, sometimes, and I think many times a day. So what he was saying was, on your last day, as you're breathing your last breath, did you live a good life? Had you, had you contributed something to your fellow human being? That's what he was saying. And that's success. Success is not how much money you make or, yeah, it helps it feeds your kids and it, it sends them to college. So, so I'm not poo-pooing that idea. I'm just saying success to me is how I'm going to feel about myself on my last day as I'm breathing my last breath. And I hope I will feel that it mattered that I was here. What did your dad say when you told him you wanted to be a journalist? He laughed at me, you know, because he, he was he my father was a very conservative man. He was a uh, he was a my country writer, wrong, full time military man. And he kidded me, he goes, you want to be a journalist? No, no, I was kidding about the service thing. I, I meant for you to join the service is what he said to me. <laughs> he goes, are you kidding? He goes, no, my and I know I no Look, as long as you do it right. And as long as you don't tell me your opinion, as long as you defend the truth that I'm on your side. You know, I remember when we would watch the news at night when I was in high school, he would yell at the TV set whenever anybody tried to put their point of view. And in in those days, it was a verb or maybe somebody put a slight intonation. Uh, And and it's, it's, it's very easy to do. You know, I've done it, not meaning to, but I've done it. We've all done it when we're on television. It's easy to be vulnerable to accidentally putting something in there that you shouldn't, the wrong word, something, or something inadvertent even. But... But he would always say, guard against it. And now, all these years later, he's gone. But now I'm his daughter, and I'm yelling at the TV. Um, I think that journalists, most journalists, don't have an opinion that's worth listening to. Because what are you? You're a scribe of history. That's what your job is. But what have you done? What do you know? If you know all the deep down, all the details about nuclear, the nuclear issue and um, nuclear weapons and the problems of, you know, uranium refinement, and you have an opinion about the nuclear issue, then okay, you can call it opinion or commentary and give us your opinion because that matters. 
But unless you're an expert at anything, then you, you have no right to voice your opinion. That's my personal belief. That's what I believe. It is true that journalists should be forthcoming and they should be transparent, but they should not seize that as an opportunity in my personal view. And I know that some people who, who are practicing journalism may be, may be not happy with me for saying this, but it's the truth. This is the truth. The truth is your job is to get the truth, not to tell me what to think. I have a lot of respect for that, Anne. A lot of respect. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? The worst advice I ever received along the way was to not be a reporter. I was told by my first boss in the first station I ever worked, and I was the first woman to ever have the job, to be offered a job as a reporter. He said to me, Anne, Women have no news judgment. Besides, you can't carry the camera, so you should not be a reporter. You should turn this, down this job if you know what's good for you. And my mouth said, can you just give me a chance? I'll, I'll, I really will make you proud. I'll do a good job. And my brain said, oh, yeah, watch me. And I proved to him that I could do the job. In fact, more than that, I was eventually given the biggest beat at my station. And more than that, years later when I was given a goodbye party and all those guys came in, all those great men who at first didn't want me there, who eventually embraced me, the person who said that to me said, Anne, you know, he pulled me aside and said, Anne, I don't want you to let anything I ever said to you stop you from your dreams because you can go all the way. And I thought that was one of my great achievements was that I had actually transformed somebody's thinking about what was possible. And that, that was hugely meaningful to me. And uh, it, it was probably what made me strong enough to face everything that was to come. Adversity. Adversity is what makes you resilient. Be grateful for it. Use it as fuel. And turn it into what will propel you towards what you're meant to do in this life. Ann Curry, thank you so much for joining us on No Limits. Rebecca Jarvis, it's been a huge pleasure. And congratulations on your life, including your new baby. Thank you. Okay, it is the end of the interview, thanks to Anne. And that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, we have Taylor Majewski and Shannon O'Hara. They are the co-founders of Gigi the Robot. Here they are to tell you more. Hi, I'm Taylor Majewski. And I'm Shannon O'Hara, and we are the co-founders of Gigi the Robot, which is a newsletter that breaks down how new technology impacts women. Um, We launched Gigi about six months ago after noticing a large gap in the market. And since launching, we've covered things like the different on-demand birth control apps for women. We've covered a new form of domestic abuse that's come out of smart home devices. We recently wrote an all-encompassing guide that breaks breaks down deep fakes. And one challenge that we've had to overcome since launching is just maintaining our momentum. We both work full-time at our day jobs still, and so we do this by checking in with each other at least once a day to just make sure that any content we're putting out into the world is top quality. And we also just dedicate any free time we have to growth projects for the newsletter. 
Taylor and Shannon, congratulations. Wishing both of you continued success. And listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Taylor and Shannon. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also send over career questions. Love hearing those. And I'm doing my very best to get back to all of you. And finally, a shout out to the team here who helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Radio. Listeners, I'll see all of you next week. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times. And stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in. But you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro. Easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.